Rory O'Neill, NBC News Radio, national correspondent, taking off right now. Uh, Rory, good morning. Hey, Jack, good morning. Uh, were you disparaging Iowa voters there just a minute ago? Don't you remember the last time around? It took them a while to count. Do, do you, you remember that? Oh, right. I remember that. That was the Democratic side, right? Yeah, and you know what? There's not a lot of, them. There's not a lot of caucus goers. It took them, what, a couple days to count? Yeah. Anyway, take yeah, well, it away. I, and I'm curious, too, to see how New Hampshire voters feel about that momentum you know, do they feel there's a course correction that they can hop on and really have an influence? Because if Donald Trump walks away with a 35-point win uh, in this Iowa caucus, how is a New Hampshire Republican voter who doesn't support former President Trump, it, how are they supposed to feel uh, uh, that their vote is going to make a difference or that the steamroller is underway and it doesn't matter? I'll tell you the answer. It cuts both ways. It, 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 enable, it solidifies his base even more. But it also energizes those to show Iowa what happens in Iowa has no impact on New Hampshire, and they make a statement. The one thing I didn't mention in my analysis earlier of CNN's listening, because they said they're going to, um, uh, on some of the analysis, is is um, the New Hampshire surprise in the past is New Hampshire, if you look historically, does not really resemble what happened in the caucus process. In other words, it hasn't carried. It hasn't affected right. here much. But anyway, Rory, what do you have for us? Well, that and how does it go down to South Carolina as well? Because yeah. typically I'm yeah. here just really talking about all the activities yesterday with Chris Christie dropping out. Everyone was talking about the timing of Chris Christie's announcement just before the debate. And, and then, of course, uh, the leak on uh, the audio as well with the hot mic. Yeah. But uh, I'm also focused on South Carolina. We, where do things go next after New Hampshire? Because if Nikki Haley is trailing 30 points in her home state, it's difficult to make the argument that uh, she can win a national race. Because you still have to get to Super Tuesday in March, right, Rory? And, then, and you know, Trump would seem to have the upper hand. The biggest thing that could happen to Trump that is bad is an upset loss here. In other words, a Nikki Haley win here, even if it's by a couple points, because then it does slow things down. But other than that, if he rolls in Iowa, the caucuses, and he rolls in New Hampshire, I think you're looking at that. But we'll see. Thank you, Rory O'Neill, NBC News Radio National Correspondent. Thanks, Jack. Now, of course, a week from yesterday, we are going to be still in the middle of our special right before the primary on Tuesday, presidential primary, Capital Center for the Arts in Concord, back in New Hampshire stage. I'm going to be hosting a three-hour show, town hall-focused mental health and addiction. Now, we're going to have folks from the DEA there, John Delena, and families who have lost kids to synthetic fentanyl, kids who did not think they were going to pass away that way, nor did their parents. We're going to talk about mental health, anxiety, depression. We have folks from NAMI coming, some great mental health partners. This is by far, make no mistake about it, the number one health issue or problem facing more of you, more of us, more of me, all of our families, our listeners at all stages and all walks of life than anything else combined by far. We have some great sponsors as well that will be there. I want to bring in Dr. Catherine, um, Dr. Catherine Boger, who's the Chief Financial Officer and Co-Founder of Instride Health. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about Instride. Instride uh, provides access to insurance-based specialty outpatient care for pediatric anxiety and OCD. We know that there are so many kids right now who are struggling with anxiety and with OCD, and that access to care and access to quality care specifically is a huge challenge. And so the mission of Instride is to solve for that. Well, you know, thank you for that, because uh, one of my uh, kids, I'm a proud parent of a teacher, 
and that's her fo- focus, uh, working with younger kids that are principally dealing with that. And she's telling me the numbers are greater than we have any idea. It's true. Uh, by the age of 18, nearly one in three kids and teens will meet criteria for an anxiety disorder. So that's nearly a third of kids and teens, which is really striking. Now, I don't know if I can call you Catherine or Kat, you're, how you want to be referred to, but what made you, what, what you kind of want to get this going in stride? What was the genesis to, 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 to form this? Yeah, and you can call me Kat. Uh, so my colleague, Mona Potter, who's the CMO at Instride, the two of us worked together in academic medicine at McLean Hospital, Harvard Medical School for many years, and we had co-founded a program there for kids and teens with anxiety and OCD. And what we found is that the outcomes were really incredible. So we worked with kids who were essentially not functioning because of the severity of their anxiety or their OCD. And in a relatively short period of time, these kids were able to get their lives back. And importantly, their families were able to get their lives back too, because when a child is struggling, we know the whole family system struggles. And so then we had the opportunity to partner with McLean Hospital and take this model that we know works so well and spread it to more kids using insurance access through InStride Health. So it's been a real privilege to be able to proliferate this care that works so beautifully. You know, and what I'm, what I'm wondering, Kat, and given your background and passion, um, and this is one of the things we're going to talk about at the, at the town hall because we have a pretty good-sized studio audience. I said this to Russ Conti, who's done so much with NAMI the other day on my show. I'm going to thank you for joining us briefly ahead of our town hall. And I look forward to seeing you in person there and on the show with us next week. Is, yeah. you know, wasn't many more, it wasn't many decades ago, Kat, that if, God forbid, if someone in your family or you yourself was diagnosed with cancer or you had to have back surgery, there were stigmas attached 20, 30 years ago to cancer. You're, you and your family were an island unto yourself. Today, there's all kinds of support at the workplace. There's road races. There's fundraising efforts. Um, celebrities are talking about it. Everyone is sort of taking the stigma off of cancer and wishing you your best in the battle. And yet, if you say to a colleague, I'm depressed, I have anxiety, I have depression, unfortunately, there are stigmas. Att- How do we remove this? Yeah, you know, I, I think that the good news is that Uh, The stigma has been decreasing over time, but I agree that it it still exists. And I think one of the biggest challenges, for example, with anxiety or with depression is that it's incredibly lonely. It's a really isolating experience because people on the outside often can't tell. And so people feel like there is something wrong with them. They're the only one. And they feel really isolated and that it's hard to, to ask for help. And um, I think what I really appreciated is in, in more recent years, the focus on community and peer support and even younger generations that actually do feel more comfortable speaking up and saying that they're struggling or that they need help. Uh, teenagers who are willing to talk uh, with one another about their struggles or, or reach out to adults for support. So at Instride, we really take a systems focus and we're working not only with the child, but the systems that surround the child to ensure that everyone is on the same awesome. page. Everyone is speaking the same language and able to support that child. If people want to learn briefly more about Instride, Cat, and we'll see you next week, next Wednesday, how, how can they do that? 
Uh, they can go to our website, which is instride.health. I appreciate it. We'll see you Wednesday. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Hampshire. The Pulse of an H. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much. Dr. Uh, Nzinga Harrison is one of the authors of Unaddiction, the book. I'm holding it here. Wonderful work. Unaddiction, six mind-changing conversations that could save a life. Doctor, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. You pronounced doctor perfectly, and Nzinga was super close. <laughs> okay. Well, let me just read one of the... Um, one of the reviews, Dr. Harrison challenges the many myths the public has been fed around alcohol and drug use and delivers an approachable, humane, really book chock full of science and importantly infused with compassion. We're, ho- we're hosting Dr. next Wednesday. I'm just taking it on my own because we're on so many stations here in New England and beyond. Uh, town Hall before our presidential primary a week from Tuesday in New Hampshire at uh, the Capitol mm-hmm. Center for the Arts. And the three-hour focus is on mental health and addiction because I think it's the number one issue facing more families that I know than no disrespect to cancer, stroke, heart attack, you know, any other health threat, mental health, anxiety, depression, addiction. Too often they go hand-in-hand. So, Doctor, I want to not do the talking. Instead of a busy show this morning. Talk about the book. Talk about you a little bit, your background, what led to the book, and what are the key messages. And tell people, of course, other than Amazon, on addiction. You can just Google, look up un-addiction. And Dr. Harrison, and um, with uh, and, uh, the other author, I think last name is Floyd. So if you search that, you get the book. Tell us about you, why the book, and the takeaways. Yeah, so thank you so much, um, especially for that town hall, because could not agree more. And agree, no disrespect to the other chronic illnesses that we're dealing with, but mental health conditions, including addiction, um, are at an all-time crisis right now. So about myself, I'm a physician. My specialties are psychiatry and addiction medicine. I have been practicing addiction medicine and addiction psychiatry since 2002, have dedicated my professional life to this. Really, after in medical school, I saw just how terribly designed the healthcare system was for people with addiction and other mental health conditions in ways that um, really led us to treat them in ways that made the illness worse, not just in healthcare but also from a stigma perspective out in the world. And so this book on addiction, um, what I'm hoping is gives a bigger platform and even able to get this message of compassion and understanding about addiction to people that I may not pass in my life. Like you may not come to my clinic. I may not be your doctor. But if we can start having these conversations um, in all of our families, in all of our schools, in all of our town homes, on all of our radio stations, then we can undo. So the book is Unaddiction, this word that I made up. We can unlearn what we think we know about addiction that's actually harmful. Mm-hmm. We can undo stigma that is preventing people from asking for help and getting the help that we know can work. And we can uncover the conversations that will start to turn this mental health and addiction crisis around. Doctor, where's home to you? Where do you? Where's your practice out of your clinic? Well, I live just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, but the company I co-founded is called Eleanor Health. Mm-hmm. Um, we take care of people with addiction. We are actually in North Carolina, New Jersey, Massachusetts, the state of Washington, um, and Louisiana. Yep. Now, Doctor, I wanted to share oh, with you. Oh, and Ohio. Sorry, my Ohio nope. people were like, hello. I love, your, I love how genuine and 
passionate you are about this stuff because it's so <laughs> important. And, and I'd love to get you back on the show. So, J-Doc, please make a note. I'd love the doc uh, back on the show. I'm, I'm, looking for, I'm looking for an email because I want to bring this in, but I can narrate if I don't find it. But John Delena is one of the leaders nationally in the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA. He's from mm-hmm. New England originally. I've known him. He's, been a, he's really trying to educate families because we're going to be at our forum next week. And I, I just want to share personally. I, I know two families in my own sphere of life, in my own circles. They're dealing with a child that has addiction issues. And what I've learned, doctor, mm-hmm. is it's not just the child. It's the whole family. It's 24-7. You, you think it's it, the worry is there, the stress, the concern. That's right. The concern trying to get that individual better, healthier, and and addiction is a very real thing that affects so many people on so many different levels. So it, the problem is more pervasive. But one of the families coming up here next week, the child's name is Zach. He's no longer with us. His dad is a fighter mm-hmm. pilot, in the, fire, fighter pilot in the Navy. His brother is now a mm-hmm. pilot, and is and the family one of these all star families on paper. Zach was an athlete, a kid, and during the COVID times where anxiety and depression and, you know, so much craziness, mm-hmm. you know, with the remote stuff, he and a friend did what a lot of kids might do. They went online, they ordered some pills, they thought it would be fun to yep. experiment, and the f- pills were loaded with synthetic fentanyl, and the parents found Zach yep. passed away in his bedroom. Dude. So this Ugh. happens, but that's, he wasn't even addicted, you know what I'm saying? So I, mm-hmm. this is such a big mm-hmm. thing. How do we how do we remove the stigma so that everyone can look at this and say, "Hey, it's not just them. It could be me. It could be our family." That's right. That's right. So the statistic is you just said two families that you know of. The statistic is 46% of people know someone who is living with or struggling with addiction. That's one in two. Jay, that is everybody. That is all of us. So, like, one of the first stigmas we need to undo is this idea that addiction is happening to other people. No, it is happening to us. We either have addiction, whether it's in a mild, moderate, or severe form, or we know someone close to us that we care about who, who has addiction. And so the more we can talk about this, my family history is loaded with addiction and other mental health conditions on both sides, mom and dad. And so in this book, there are scripts. I started talking to my kids at four years old about their genetic risk for addiction, about addiction as a disease that we address with compassion, about what the symptoms look like, about how to keep themselves safe. And so Zach um, may thank you for keeping his story alive so that his light can continue to shine in this world and help other people stay alive. My 17-year-old right now can tell you I'm like, if somebody gives you a pill at school and they tell you it's Tylenol, what is it actually? He's like, it's fentanyl, Mom. I'm like, exactly. I'm like, if you're at a party and somebody says this is cocaine, what is it actually? He's like, it's fentanyl, Mom. Exactly. Because we're having that conversation, he has an ability to try to keep himself safe in a way that he wouldn't if we were afraid to have this conversation. Right. So, Jay, your town hall, Jack, yeah. your radio show telling Zach's story, this is what we have to do. Well, again, the book, On Addiction, and you can Google doctors, uh, Dr. Harrison is the last name, and uh, the, uh, your co-author, I think the last name is Floyd, is that correct? Mm-hmm. And they, On Addiction, That's get right. the book. And, and real quickly, um, I was going to ask you one other question but we we are up against it, so um, I'm going to circle back and try and get you back on the show. But the best way to get the book, uh, Amazon, I'd love and, to. And is that the easiest way? 
Yeah, it's actually everywhere. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, independent bookstores, online, in the store, everywhere. Because I, I know what I was going to talk about is how do we get more folks like you in your profession? Because I talk to healthcare folks, and there's such a critical shortage of folks just like yourself, doctor, who are determined and passionate to help people uh, on the mental health side and addiction side. Yeah, it's a critical shortage. It started to happen, thankfully. So when I was in medical school and training, addiction was not talked about at all. It is now part of medical education. It's part of training for all specialties. We have to do education to get our licenses. But really, Jay, we know people. We care about people. It's in our families and our patients. So the more we talk about it, the more we develop the passion to do something about it. All right. Jack Heath, J-Dog on the boards. Thank you very much, Doc. We appreciate it joining us. Good luck. The book on addiction. We'll get you back again soon on our network of news talk stations, The Pulse of an Age. Thank you, Doc. Thanks, Jay. Talk to you soon. If I have this correct, and we have their CEO on joining us now live. Good morning, Hampshire, on The Pulse of an Age. We'll preview and talk about what their priorities are in 2024. Mental health. And trying to get to people earlier in the process when it comes to available treatment and services with earlier coverage. But the CEO will correct me because she knows more than me on this. Maria Prue, CEO, Anthem Blue Cross, Blue Shield of New Hampshire. Thanks for being with us. Good morning, Jack. Thanks for having me. Well, you're, you've been a part of this, the healthcare side of things, um, in, in our market for quite some time. I think it's a big, big issue facing more of our listeners. That's why I chose to put this together and do a three-hour town hall on this. But one of the things is I'm hearing still that too often someone experiencing a mental health episode, whether on their own or a loved one or someone else, might be taken to, for example, a local hospital emergency room. We've heard about that here. And too often that those facilities are ill-equipped, not prepared to help or handle that. And a lot of times there are things that could have been done to prevent that. So, Maria, I'm going to let you run with this a little bit. Thanks for being part of our town hall. Take it away. Sure. Thanks, Jack. And and thank you for for shining such a spotlight on this on this issue because as you said this is a major issue um you know that that we all should be worried about and we should be focused on and i think you know i'll go back to something that you've been talking about this morning i heard your interview with kat and dr harrison you talked about cancer and sort of you know how we all appreciate um i think common sense that early diagnosis and treatment with cancer um, gives you a much higher um, probability of survival, right? We treat it and, and you live and you're able to live a healthy life. I don't think that folks have that same appreciation or understand that mental health issues are no different. And that if we can treat them early on in children um, and address the issues that they have in young adults, that we can help, uh, you know, those children and those young adults live a much uh, more fulfilling life. And so our focus uh, in 2024 is really on treating mental health as primary care. You know, when we talk about those annual wellness visits that people go to their primary care providers to, we have been working hard to ensure that at that primary care level, the discussion around mental health is happening. So that if there is a mental health issue, that the treatment can begin and we can help these people um, address those concerns. Um, but we still have, we still have a lot to do to educate um, around this topic. And I think, you know, from Anthem, for Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield, you know, we've said to ourselves, what can we do from our seat in the stands to help educate and importantly to help increase access to mental health services and reduce some of the barriers that we have 
for folks who, who want to seek those, those services. Interesting. And one of the things we're going to talk about with folks from NAMI and, and of course, the DEA is going to be there, John Delaney, talking about addiction as well, because too often people will self-medicate, as you know, Maria, and get into more trouble, and it can ruin families and lives if they take the wrong pill, for example. So one of the things is, again, you mentioned the cancer thing, is, is removing stigmas, getting more people willing to talk. I mean, I think you and I would agree, Maria, uh, who's the CEO of Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield in New Hampshire, if someone's in the workplace or on a work call, and they say, well, I'd be there today, but I threw my back out. You know, I threw my back out. I picked up something that must be a herniated disc. Everyone says, oh, man, I, good luck with that. I, that kills. I can relate. That's terrible. And, and there's no, no one scratches their head and thinks anything. But if, if someone says, you know, I, I was going to be on the call or the meeting today, but I'm feeling depressed, very anxious. I, I, I almost feel like I could do something bad to myself or someone else. Everyone, like, runs the other way, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we are working hard across the healthcare ecosystem to reduce those stigmas. Um, I think you heard from Kat Bozier this morning from In Stride who talked about that and talked about how, you know, we each as individuals, right, just as parents, you know, what are the level of conversations we're having with our kids at a young age? And so that when these kids become adults, to your point, and they're in the workplace and they're having those feelings, that they have grown up in an environment in a society that is accepting of those issues. And there isn't the stigma and they do feel like they can come forward and have those conversations. I think parents, you know, leaders uh, in organizations, we all have a responsibility to make sure that we create an environment where people feel safe to talk about whatever health mm. issue uh, they might be having. What are the barriers before we let you go, Maria, that you're facing um, from a public policy, from a marketplace implementation, other business owners, insur- insurance, um, you know, recipients and all that. What are some of the challenges that you want to help overcome or awareness where you feel what you're on to can help this problem? Sure. So I think one of the biggest barriers we're seeing is people understanding what their health care provider options are. So we hear about and talk a lot about access. There's there's a shortage, right? You just had this conversation, I believe, with Dr. Harrison. There's not enough mental health providers. And that is true writ large. However, in New Hampshire, we do have access and availability through our behavioral health network for our Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield members. And so, but one of the barriers we have is making sure all of our members are educated about those access points. So if I need psychiatry or psychology or social work, where do I go and get that information? How do I access my in-network providers? Um, and how do I understand my benefits so I know, you know, what it's going to cost me to, to be able to see those providers? And so part of what we're doing and, and me talking with you, Jack, today and being there next week with you is trying to really get the word out to, to our members of how they access those, how they, how they achieve those access. So where do I go look, Mm -hmm. you know, for for a mental health provider? Um, Because we do have capacity in our network. You know, as I said before, you had Kat on earlier in Stride Health, which is very focused on children ages 7 to 22. They have capacity. 
And so as a parent with it, with a young child that might be struggling, you know, we want folks to know that Instride is part of the Anthem network. We have a great bundled arrangement, which actually reduces the cost burden on families. Um, and that is available to all of our members. So I think the more we can have these conversations and we can talk very publicly about how to find out where your access is, I think we'll get people into the points of care that they need in a more timely way. Well, good stuff. Doc. I was going to say, doctor, we just had a doctor on, and you may well be Maria, but uh, the doctor, people are asking for the name of that book on addiction. Maria Prue, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you next Wednesday. Bank of New Hampshire Stage, Capital Center for the Arts in Concord, Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield. Thanks for being part of the program. Thanks, Jack. Have a good one. Thank Bye-bye. you. Lucas Meyer, a great Democratic analyst. Lucas, I was going to say this about the DNC letter, because I know you think it's not a story, but I wanted to share this, and you can run with this. I want to talk about Christie out and all this stuff happening in New Hampshire. But I was hoping, in the Battle of the Bulge is a great scene and a really far stretch, where the American commander says to the Germans, like, do you guys want to surrender? He One-word answer. One-word answer. Nuts. Absolutely. Who can so I, so I was an hoping... all-time quote. I know. I was hoping Senator Shaheen on this DNC stuff was going to just, when someone asked her officer, she sent the letter back to the DNC two leaders telling New Hampshire Democrats don't vote. I was hoping she was either going to say nuts or stuff it. And I thought that would be yeah. a great thing. Yeah, I I do not understand the rhyme or the reason to the letter. <clears throat> I don't know to what ends. It's productive. Um a distraction when the last thing we need is distractions um, within the Democratic Party in this primary. The the write-in process is being run smoothly. The campaign is there. There's a presence. Like, I don't know why they thought this was a prudent thing to do. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful people can just get over it and, like, get back to work. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, definitely a pretty uh, unforced error is what I would call it. All right, real quickly... New Hampshire, a week from this Tuesday, Iowa first. Christie out, surprised or not. And St. Anselm poll out later today, I'm hearing it's showing, unlike that UNH poll, that Trump still has a double-digit lead, even if you put in half of Christie's support over Nikki Haley here. But, of course, it's only a poll. Take it away, Take it away, Lucas. Yeah, I was certainly surprised to see Christie drop out um, before, you know, New Hampshire, at least run it through here. I mean, this is a state where you're probably going to have your broadest appeal, even though, you know, there are probably more Democrats in the country that support Chris Christie than Republicans. Um, so I think that was interesting. I thought his hot mic moment was very telling. I mean, it's also interesting when there's a, you know, a political figure like Chris Christie who does speak so frankly all the time. It was kind of funny to catch him being pretty similar, uh, off, kind of in, uh, accidentally caught on a hot mic, um, where he was saying, you know, she doesn't have a shot. You know, it's over. DeSantis is freaking out. Um, so I think it's, you know, if you're a Republican, I don't know how you feel. And you have, you know, the go- Governor Sununu was on CNN today or last night saying, you know, if Trump is a convicted felon, he's still going to vote for him. So, like, wh- who, I mean, like, who's standing up to the guy? And who's really going to put the boots to Trump? Uh, it's, still, it's still not there. And I, I mean, that's interesting on the St. Anselm poll. I know there have been a lot of national figures looking to see what the updated numbers in New Hampshire look like, um, which is, I think, what everyone's been expecting, that President Trump, in spite of all it was 91 felony counts, lost track of how many lawsuits. Um, I mean, this is a, heading towards an unmitigated disaster. Mm. I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I, I, I think the big question I ask people is, 
Are independents, are the underqueer, are they going to vote in the Republican primary in big numbers or not? Governor Sununu was on the show the other morning. Of course, he's pushing and hoping it's a big number for Nikki Haley. He said more than 40% of those that block would vote in the Republican primary. Seems high to me, but maybe I'm just missing something. Yeah, I think that might that might be high. And they're also, I mean, who who knows? Does, the, does some of the public polling around the gap being so wide that an independent doesn't really feel like it's worth it to go vote, you know, maybe change trajectory for a primary and jump over and vote for a Republican like Nikki Haley if they see the gap is so wide that they don't feel like they can close the gap. Who knows? I mean, I think there'll be a lot of interesting political signs coming out of this. And, you know, it's always funny with these big national races. You, you kind of forget that eventually they happen. And, it, you know, the Iowa caucuses are coming up fast, and that's going to, you know, shake up this race all over again. So certainly is a short of entertainment, right. but I don't know if that's the point. All right, buddy. <laughs> Go get him. We'll talk to you soon. Lucas Meyer, thank you. Thanks, Jack. Straight to the Dome.